0: early 19th century, there were tax collectors that were preying on farmers and bankrupting them by making them pay onerous taxes. And so the farmers decided to band together and revolt and they all had these tin horns that they used to signal when the tax collectors were coming. One of our founders found that history and that's how our band got its name.
1: That's Lisa Lindsay of the Tin Horn Uprising. We'll be hearing from Lisa in just a little bit. Welcome to Spotlight 19. Justin Tracy here.
2: And this is Saja Tracy.
1: And we're back. This is the podcast tracking Representative John Faso's voting record in New York's 19th Congressional District and working to elect our Democratic candidate... Antonio Delgado.
2: That's right. As some of our listeners know, we've been on a little hiatus. We've been training a new member of the Spotlight 19 family, Ray Charles Tracy. He's now a little over two months old. In our time away, Antonio Delgado actually won the seven-way Democratic primary on June 26th.
1: And since that win, the Faso and Delgado campaigns have been in full swing. Spotlight 19 will be your source for campaign updates and for the rest of the summer and fall we will be checking in with our Democratic candidates at the state level.
2: In today's show, we'll be talking a little bit about some of Fazzo's votes this summer before he went on recess. We'll be talking to high school student Caroline Crowell. She participated in an ACLU leadership meeting in Washington, D.C., and Fazzo refused to meet with her. After that, we interviewed members of the Tin Horn Uprising Band, which is New York 19's resistance band, and we also have an interview with Pat Strong, candidate for State Senate for District 46.
1: Yeah, and before we get to all that, we wanted to talk briefly about the Faso and Delgado campaigns. Faso has been using a crutch, a tried and tested attack that Delgado is a carpetbagger. That is, he moved here to run for Congress. Except the truth is that Delgado was born and raised in Schenectady, only a few miles outside of the district. He moved back to be closer to his family and raise his sons. His wife, Lacey, who we'll be having on the show soon, grew up right here in Woodstock and went to school in Kingston. So that label is wholly inaccurate.
2: That's right. And we discussed The carpetbagger issue with Antonio the two times that we've actually had him on the show. And he's always referred to the fact that he's actually born and raised right here, right near the district. And in addition to FASO's kind of expected attacks, there have also been these attack ads on the radio launched by the Congressional Leadership Fund. This is a super pack that is supported by speaker Paul Ryan, and the ads feature some of Antonio's lyrics from his rap album from over 10 years ago, taken wholly out of context and labeling Antonio as anti-American, and you really, it's a dog whistle to the racists out there because it's attempt. these ads are attempting to label rap as this outside negative force.
1: Yeah, I always knew that if Delgado were the nominee, that racism would be a part of the election, but even knowing it was coming didn't make it any less disgusting when it happened. Moving on to some of Faso's summer actions he's pushing the reclassification of nut and alternative milks by the FDA to no longer be labeled milk. Fazzo believes that things like almond milk are the reason for the decline in sales of dairy. Yet Fazio's denying the fact that the decline is really due to people becoming more aware that plant-based eating is healthier and excess dairy and meat products are contributing to climate change.
2: Yeah, so we're certainly going to see a shift in John Faso during this campaign where he'll be trying to say that he's a moderate, he believes in science, climate change, but his votes and actions certainly show otherwise. And speaking of dairy farmers... Back uh, before we went on our break, FASO had co-sponsored the farm bill. We've talked about it in depth before. It makes it more difficult for people to qualify for food stamps, and it will eventually leave more children right here in this district hungry. And this is the same farm bill that harms endangered species, and it actually failed in the House. Now the Senate and the House are trying to reconcile these two bills to provide some relief to the dairy farmers in the district uh, and beyond. And it was really interesting to see Faso. He actually posted a photo of himself at an elementary school in Dover uh, where he was um, talking about the summer food assistance program. And he posed with some of the children who received that food aid during the summer. And it was really ironic because his his farm bill actually makes it more difficult for those same kids to potentially receive uh, SNAP benefits, also known as food stamps.
1: Yeah, it's gross to me that Faso will appear in any photo op, but his votes and actions are harming the people in the photo. He also voted to express congressional opposition to a carbon tax, cementing what we already knew Faso is in the pocket of the fossil fuel industry.
2: Right. It's easy to forget that John Faso was actually a lobbyist for um, the constitutional pipeline, which would have run through New York 19. Uh, So if he's using this kind of rhetoric to suggest that he's a moderate or that he is Pro environment because he does, he has taken some smaller actions that help local communities here, but the bigger picture is that he's he's the same John Faso that voted to allow coal mining waste in streams and to, uh, you know, sell federal lands for mining in Minnesota, so John Faso is no friend of the environment, and it's more important than ever to keep an eye on what he's actually done and what he's doing because there's going to be many, many distractions while both Fazzo and Delgado are campaigning. So now we're actually going to hear a little bit from high schooler Caroline Crowell on her experience with John Fazzo this summer. Today, we're talking with New York 19 youth activist Caroline Crowell. She just returned from an ACLU youth training in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for speaking to us, Caroline. Yeah, thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about how you heard about this training and conference in D.C.
3: Yeah, so I heard about it through an ACLU live stream that I was watching. So I figured I looked into it and it looked really interesting. Um, It was a week long conference where we heard from different speakers like Anthony Romero and Edward Snowden about protection of um, American civil liberties. And it was really, it was a great experience. It was really interesting. And I met kids from all across the country.
2: So were the students and participants at the training encouraged and able to meet with their congressional representatives?
3: Yeah. So at the end of the week, there was a day where we all went to the Hill and kids got opportunities to meet with their reps. There were kids who got to meet with Democrats as well as Republicans. There were actually some kids from Texas who got to meet with Ted Cruz. And a lot of the kids who didn't get to meet with their reps directly got to meet with staffers or interns for their reps. But I was told, along with a few other kids, that their reps were unavailable for whatever reason, so we weren't able to meet with them.
2: So you weren't actually able to meet with your rep, who's John Faso. Uh, You're actually from East Chatham here in the district, right? Yeah, I am. So did you see Representative Faso at all while you were in Washington, D.C.?
3: So that day after the meeting time, we got the opportunity to go watch in the house gallery, watch all the representatives voting. And we were told that every single rep was in that room at the time. And I was trying to spot him, look for him. And there were a lot of white guys in suits, but I'm pretty sure that I saw him down there. And I know that he was definitely there.
2: I'm not surprised, but what's actually your reaction to not being able to meet with John Faso?
3: I think it was really eye opening to me. I know. I knew that he has been, he has a habit of being inaccessible to his constituents, but showing that, seeing that even Ted Cruz would take the chance to meet with these kids and Faso wouldn't even send an intern to talk to me and the other girl from 19, it really just showed how unwilling he is to hear from kids and from anyone in the district.
2: So you're actually starting an internship with the Antonio Delgado campaign, right? Yeah, I am. So how does your experience in D.C. impact your outlook on your internship? This internship could potentially lead to getting rid of FASO as our representative.
3: Yeah, so starting with Delgado's campaign next week, it having this experience prior to that has gotten me even more motivated and excited to help get FASO out of office. I think we really need a rep that's a lot more accessible, a lot more willing to talk to constituents. And from the interactions that I've had with Delgado so far, I can tell that he is that guy. And I'm really excited to help get the vote out for him.
2: That's great. And you'll be working out of the Hudson field office, correct?
3: Yes, I will be.
2: So if anyone is in the Columbia County area or near Hudson, you should definitely meet this amazing young activist when you're at the office picking up your Delgado yard sign. And Caroline, thank you so much for talking to us. It was a pleasure. Yeah,
3: thank you again for having me.
2: So today we have with Spotlight 19, Lisa and Bernard from the Tin Horn Uprising. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Uh, So let's... Talk about the best resistance ban in the country, which is what I was just saying before we went
0: on the record,
2: but I I do think it's true. I
0: think we are probably the best resistance ban in the 19th Congressional
4: District. Yeah, I was gonna say maybe in, no, in I Kingston. Think, I
2: think country is is good.
4: <laughs> I actually didn't know who you were referring to when you said that.
2: <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the origins of Tinhorn Uprising.
0: Sure. So uh Tim Horn Uprising was started by uh, five individuals and who have a background in music, in organizing, in anti-racism work, in activists, and in art, and in community development. And they put out a call uh, for people to come together. And our first rehearsal uh, was at the Old Dutch Church in Kingston on a Sunday night. It was uh, January 2nd, 2017. I still get chills when I think about it. I didn't know anyone. I brought a neighbor. I actually brought Jason Clinton, the the spouse of uh, Deborah Clinton, who uh, oh, wow. with me is on the, we're both on the board of Move Forward New York. And we got out of our car with our saxophones and out of the shadows came people walking around, you know, Dark, deserted downtown Kingston on on a Sunday night, carrying sousaphones and accordions and trumpets, and it was
2: incredible. And it's been an incredible experience ever since. So, how many members does the band have? If they're, I know it's kind of going to be a fluid number,
0: right? We have so about seventy-five members, and they're not all. You know, people are some people are more active than others, but we have seventy-five members.
4: But we have people in Columbia County and then as far south as. Well, below, like Fishkill or something. Yep. So if something's going on in Kinderhook, we're likely to get our northern neighbors, more of our northern neighbors. And if it's happening south of Poughkeepsie, that's a, a slightly different crew.
2: That's actually a perfect tie-in to my next question, which is, how do you actually decide which events you're going to play? I know you're kind of a fixture at Fazzo Friday in Kingston, but you also are you know, present at a lot of the different actions around the district. Right
0: so I, I did a um, I attempted to count up how many uh, how many times we've played uh, so I think that um, we've played at at least sixty five different events um, wow, yeah, since before the inauguration, plus at least forty three faso Fridays and so I think that the way we decide is that uh, sometimes one of us will find out that an event is happening or that an event should be happening. Um, and we will contact the organizers and ask them if it'd be helpful to to have a marching band there or a brass band there. Uh, sometimes people contact us through our website, tinhornuprising.org, uh, and and usually we will put out a call to the band members. And if enough band members say that they're willing to do it, then then we do it.
2: One of the views that we've heard from kind of people who are more on the center is. You know, the and then this band showed up to this protest and you know, these these hippies and these radical leftists as John Faso has called some of the protests outside his office. I was wondering if you face any kind of opposition from from people and how you've possibly dealt with that. We had some of
0: our members got arrested inside John Faso's office. Oh, are they uh, part of Kinder the
2: the Faso nine? Yep. Yeah. So the the FASO9 is uh, a group of individuals who (laughs) were protesting the DREAM Act in Kinderhook, um, and we've talked about them a little bit on the show. So I didn't realize that some of the members were three of them. Some of the
4: founders, right? Yep,
2: yep. I believe there's a hearing tomorrow. Yes. (laughs) So um, what was... What was that experience like? Is it something that you ever expected going into this? Well, yes,
0: it, it was. Uh, so the band went, and uh, there were some of us, that I was part of the group that had decided not to risk arrest And so when law enforcement started moving in, we left and played outside the office and then we saw our bandmates get arrested and they knew they were risking arrest. And then, um, you know, at the Black Women's March, some of us, I was one of the ones who had committed to risking arrest. Uh, So it's a matter of, you know, we're trying to get additional training and um, just be ready for some of the things that might happen if, you know, if fascism
2: continues to escalate in our country. John Faso, now that we're turning to this election and the campaign that's going to be in full swing after June 27th, where Faso's definitely going to be hitting the airwaves, Mm -hmm. uh, we know he's going to kind of pivot to being a moderate because that's kind of what he has done in the past. And... Uh, Meanwhile, he's one of the few congressmen in the country that had people arrested in his office, including members of your band. So I find that really interesting um, and kind of sad, honestly.
4: I I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, and I thought surely when, when the band started that we would be in situations where we would be handcuffed and people would be attacking us on the streets and so forth. Many, many of the people in the band are... Retirees and not physically resilient, let's say, and it's been surprising that we we've had very little of it. The most we've had is sometimes somebody will ride past in a car and they'll yell um, articulately, as it may seem, get a job.
2: If anyone wants to get in touch with Tinhorn or how do they find you i know you mentioned the website earlier yeah, but just one email, more time they can email us at uh, info at dot org well thank you so much for taking the time to be here it was great to talk to you guys and we're looking forward to seeing and hearing much more of you guys thanks for the great work you do on this podcast so we just heard from Tinhorn Uprising, and next up we have our interview with Pat Strong, who is running for New York State Senate. Uh, we know some of our listeners are spread out throughout the congressional district and Pat Strong may not be running in your specific Senate district, but we hope you'll still listen and chances are you have friends or family in the 46th Senate district. So as we go through the next few weeks and have our state candidates on, we hope you'll give them a listen and spread the word about them, even though you may not be a constituent in their district. So today uh, we have with us Pat Strong, who is running for Senate in New York State's 46th District. Welcome, Pat. Thank you so much for being here.
5: Thank you, Saja. I'm delighted to be here.
2: And you're our first candidate in a while since uh, we had a baby recently. So Congratulations um... <laughs>
5: to you both on beautiful Ray Thank Charles. you. And Ray you. is
2: sitting in with us. So uh, to our listeners, you might be hearing a little bit from him. So let's just jump right in. You just got an endorsement from the Capitol Women. Congratulations. Thank you. And I actually wanted to start off with that. You're one of what I've actually dubbed, in my mind, the Fantastic Four, a group of four women who are running for Senate seats uh, in New York's 19th Congressional District. Um, Not perfectly aligned with that Congressional District, but it's yourself, Karen Smythe, over... Uh, across the river, Jen Metzger and Joyce St. George. So uh, tell us a little bit about your experience so far running with this group of women.
5: Oh, it's been wonderful. Absolutely. We've uh, we've chatted and we've talked, uh, had a chance to talk uh, somewhat at length. Recently, we did a press conference together up in Albany, just calling out the um, uh, Senate Uh, Republicans for leaving so much work undone. Uh, So I look forward to collaborating with them. And then the really fun thing is that the four of us are part of the Baker Project of Eleanor's Legacy, which is actually 12 women running for the state Senate across the state.
2: And this is a really important year, as uh, some of our listeners know, and as you know, uh, the president just has nominated a second Supreme Court Justice, uh, Judge Kavanaugh. And You know, women's issues are really at the forefront because uh, it could this appointment could lead to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. So I wanted to hear more about any of your plans or positions that could preserve a woman's right to choose here in New York, because that is one pathway that we can kind of defend against this potential assault against women's rights.
5: Absolutely. A first order of business when we have the majority in January of 2019 is going to be codifying Roe versus Wade. A lot of uh, folks think that it's a federal issue, but in fact, it's devolving to the states. So it's going to be very important uh, for the state Senate to take up this bill, uh, which has not been able to pass um, the Senate previously to uh, codify Roe versus Wade so that in the event it's turned over federally, we'll have full protections here in the state. And that's
2: a point of departure from your opponent, right? Senator Amador, I believe, is firmly pro-life. Is that is that correct? Uh, I believe so. Right. And it's hard to know what his actual position is on a number of women's issues is because there haven't been that many votes on women's issues since he's taken office. Mm -hmm. So another thing that I think that Senator Amador will point out is that you're both quote-unquote small business owners, and we know politicians love to cite small business owners as the backbone of the American economy, but I would suggest that he is definitely in big business. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your uh, business history in this community? And you're from Kingston, correct?
5: I am from Kingston. I came over in 1983 to work for the Daily Freeman and spent about 10 years in journalism. And then I had the opportunity to start my own business um, about 15 years ago. Uh, helping people save money by saving energy, essentially. So I promote solar and wind and how to make homes and businesses and institutions more energy efficient. And over the years, I've had a chance to give about two dozen people jobs, uh, which has been uh, really fun and gratifying. And uh, but it keeps me firmly in the camp of a small business. How
2: does that differ from George Amador, who is of Amador Homes? And also, uh, I think last year or the year before it was um, reported that he's, I think, the third wealthiest senator who gets income from outside sources other than his, you know, Senate salary. What's kind of the difference between yourself as a small business owner? And I know he likes to say he's also a small business owner.
5: Well, you know, for this election, I'm really sticking to his record primarily is what I care about and what I think the voters uh, need to know about. But I, I uh, did note that he raised a million three in the last election. So he brought considerable resources to his last uh, election. Bid. And
2: is campaign finance reform part of your platform? Or what are your thoughts on what we can do to prevent the need? for millions of dollars, required to run a successful campaign here in New York?
5: Very much so. It's part of my platform. We need to get dark money out of politics. There's a number of pieces of legislation that have been stalled. Principal among them is the um, LLC loophole uh, bill, which the Republican majority has voted against, I think, three times now, and uh, they've said they'll vote against it again. So our... Uh, early business would include taking up that law and passing it.
2: So going back a little bit to your background as a small business owner, something we hear a lot from our friends and peers that are also small business owners or are freelancing is healthcare. And I know that you're a supporter of the New York Health Act. And yesterday or the day before, I believe the RAND, um, it, it is the RAND Corporation, correct? So the yes. RAND Corporation so the Rand Cor- came out with a study that sh- proves that the New York Health Act will not lead to increased costs or increased taxes. So could you speak a little bit more on your support on the New York Health Act, which is essentially a single payer healthcare system for the state of New York?
5: Yeah, I was very disappointed, actually, that I didn't get to sit in on the conference call that was held uh, to discuss the, the report, but I will be uh, listening to the podcast as soon as I can. Uh, the single-payer uh, health care that's envisioned through the New York Health Act uh, is absolutely the, the step in the right direction. Uh, premiums you know, continue to rise, and we still have too many of our friends and neighbors who are uninsured. So this is a step we need to go in and it is a framework bill. It is not a fully fleshed-out piece of legislation. So that means there's going to be a lot of work to do in 2019 uh, to put um, teeth into the bill, and I'm sure it will result in um, a lot of compromise and a lot of discussion so that um, the different parts of our uh, economy you know, can come together around this. But we've watched a neighboring state do it, Massachusetts, and it is absolutely time for New York to move in this direction. What well, has
2: been your experience personally or uh, as a small business owner with health care. You know, over the years, over you, the years the- you started your business kind of before the Affordable Care Act went into place. Right. And we hear really different stories from people. Some people say the ACA allowed them for the first time to have insurance, which was great. Mm-hmm. And then there are a lot of small business owners, especially in our area, that say they've seen their premium skyrocket and, they're kind of opposed to what has happened since the implementation of the Affordable Care Act.
5: Yeah, thank you for this question. I really appreciate it. I did not experience a skyrocketing of premiums. I've uh, always offered insurance to my employees who need it. I certainly have had uh, employees who did not need it because they were covered by a family member. Uh, But for those who did, we've seen... You know, like with anything else, we've seen creeping increases over the years uh but I have not experienced the um huge increase right now. I'm covered um on the um you know the state exchange myself, and while it's more than I wish to be paying uh, I certainly uh, am glad for it. It has high deductibles um but I can imagine, and I do know from talking to many people that those um high deductibles are hard to pay. So we need to get in there, fine-tune uh this plan and uh make it accessible to everybody.
2: So on our podcast we follow kind of almost obsessively John Faso, um, more so than what's going on in the New York state uh at the state level. Um mm-hmm. but George Aminor actually shares an office with John Faso here in Kingston and as as you know, the there's you know, Faso there's- Friday. Every week, Every um, week um, do you think that Faso Friday has increased awareness of Amador, or do you think that you know people are so focused on sticking up to Trump, and one of the ways to do so is through Congress that they're kind of forgetting about uh, the state mechanisms that we have to really you know go against what's going on in Washington? I think
5: there's generally increased voter awareness across the board. Uh, while uh, there is tremendous interest in uh, sending Mr. Faso on to his next um, job, I think a lot of people realize that very uh, concrete um, things like health care, uh, like women's reproductive rights, have been stalled, and it's the state, not the federal government, that's holding up
2: Sure, and do progress. you have any interest in running for office or what really uh, led you to make that decision to, to to get involved in this crucial year
5: yeah well, I certainly am a first-time candidate, uh, but I have been very active in my community. So I've been active in the small business community in Kingston, particularly with regard to brand-new businesses, uh, businesses owned by first-generation Americans, you know, all along the Broadway corridor where I'm located. That has been something I've focused on, helping my neighbors be successful businesses. And so with that as a background uh, plus my own volunteer work in the arts uh, in a leadership uh, role, convening um, you know meetings of the artists who are bringing new life to Kingston. I felt that I could take that success that i 've had in bringing people together and uh, make it translate uh, in government and policy-making. You
2: mentioned your role with local artists, and is that the Made in Kingston Kingston initiative? Could you tell us a little bit more about about that? that?
5: Sure, absolutely. You know, my uh, home and office are located in Midtown Kingston, which has uh, had a reputation, or had a reputation for many years, as the most economically challenged uh, part of the city. And um, it was always our belief, uh, my belief and that of the folks I I work uh, on a volunteer basis with, is that it was really poised for takeoff. It was where people would invest once they saw what a great neighborhood it was. And sure enough, a lot of artists who are pouring out of the boroughs of New York City find that uh, they can get... Uh, wonderful spaces to rent or buy in Kingston. And so we've really uh, experienced a renaissance there. So about six years ago, we started an annual event to bring all the artists together right before Christmas so they can show their wares, sell their wares, and demonstrate the power of the arts in Kingston. Well,
2: I have to applaud you because your uh, attention level and focus is excellent because Ray Charles is just waking up and... I think he's just I think he's just saying amen,
5: yeah. you know yeah. he's like he's amening me.
2: One issue that I think you're probably strongest on against Amador is the environment, which is so so important to the people of your district for sure um. As we were discussing off the record, was that your district is runs right along the Hudson River, and as as we know, the Hudson River has gone through kind of a renaissance of after a first cleanup. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done, but tell us a little bit more about your environmental positions and how they differ from your opponent who supported hy- hydrofracking. <sighs>
5: Well, my background is in energy. So, you know, the state of New York has some very ambitious goals uh, to uh, reduce our carbon footprint um, very aggressively, 50% by 2030. So, my work supports that in helping people access solar and wind and energy efficiency technologies. Uh, I have a project now that I've been doing for two years helping uh, cities, towns, and villages convert to LED streetlights. Uh, that's been a terrific one because it allows really deep uh, energy and cost savings at the municipal level. There's very few things that uh, towns can do that actually saves a bunch of money. So that's been a great project. And then I absolutely am in support and have been for years of the efforts to clean up the Hudson River. I was privileged to go out on the riverkeeper boat just last Friday and um, get a whole, you know, review of our progress and lack of progress with bringing back the river. So it's cleaner for those of us who want to swim in it. But if you're certain kinds of fish uh, coming to spawn, it's still not a, um, a habitat that is on the increase. You know, the fish are not on the increase. They're actually dying off. So we have a lot more work to do. And um, I'm aware that the um, DEC, the Department of Environmental Conservation, does yeoman's work in New York State. They are a fabulous agency. Uh, but they have experienced cuts over the years, and it has taken uh, a toll, certainly, on what they can monitor and how much they can uh, help. So uh, these are issues that I'm going to bring with me to the State Senate.
2: And- Something that all Republicans always run on is that the Democrats are going to raise your taxes and you're going to have less income to work with. How, do you, how are you going to combat against that inevitable attacks Obviously already started.
3: Mm -hmm.
5: Well, the part of state government that I work most closely with is the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, or NYSERDA for short. And the whole focus at NYSERDA is giving people a reasonable payback for the energy investments they make. So we've never um, put forth the notion that people ought to just invest in technologies and not um, you know, not experienced any kind of cost savings. It, rather, the uh, NYSERDA is not a taxing authority, but rather it collects um, fees on electric light bills. That's how the projects are funded. Uh, but there, the focus is always on giving people a short payback on their energy investments. And that's, that's true throughout government. M- most good government involves um, giving taxpayers and ratepayers uh, a reasonable Um, period in which they have to invest.
2: So aside from campaigning for the rest of the summer and into the fall, do you have any non-political plans coming up (laughs) that you can think of offhand?
5: Well, uh, we do like to spend time with our grandchild. Uh, He just turned one-year-old Langston, and uh, so whenever we can, we get over to see him. And then we're big, um, we're big dog lovers, so we love to walk with our dog. But now we're walking in the district looking for voters <laughs> we can talk to.
2: Well, thank you so much, Pat, of for being here. And we hope to see you again. And I know that uh, if people want to volunteer or learn more about your campaign, where should they go? How did they get in touch with you?
5: I would be delighted to hear from anyone. Uh, we can, You can go to VotePatStrong.com, and there's a Get Involved button right there. We are doing uh, phone banking on Thursday nights at 448 Broadway in Kingston. It's a lovely office that's been loaned to us for uh, the time being. And so either way, you can catch up with us.
1: Next week, our show will be featuring Chad McAvoy, who's running for State Assembly in New York's 101st District. Reach out to us on social media. Our handle is at NYSpotlight19. And Ray says... Keep the faith.